Hello and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and I'm joined by Alistair McClellan and Alison Moore. On Monday, the ambulance service experienced its worst night ever, with all ambulance trusts in England escalating to the highest level of alert. And with even even hotter weather coming this weekend, sources have told HSJ they are fearful about the further distress this will bring. We'll be discussing more as to why the NHS is experiencing this extreme pressure in July and also what's being done about it. Also on this week's episode, last week NHS England confirmed over 6,000 jobs would be cut following the merger between itself, Health Education England and NHS Digital. And we'll be asking in more detail how big should it really be. But first, let's talk about ambulances. Alison, you lead on the ambulance service for HSJ and this crisis has been bubbling for a few months now. But how surprised were you by the news on Monday night that it was really so dreadful? I was a little surprised it comes so early in the summer and we have heard predictions that August the 17th would be the day when it all started to to collapse. Um, I think... You know, possibly on August the 17th, it may be pretty bad, but I think it's probably got, got extremely bad um, over the weekend. And then on, on Monday and yesterday morning, we heard that all the ambulance ser- services in England were in what's called REAP 4, which is the highest level of alert. Some were in business continuity as well, and some had declared critical incidents. Mm. And And so did you get a sense of what had sort of prompted this on Monday because um, you know were there any particular factors kind of combining to create this sort of situation? Yes I think I think there's been a lot going on on the (laughs) under the radar really. Um, The current Omicron wave um, which is predominantly uh, BA5 I think in the UK has certainly contributed to that. There's a lot of ambulance staff who are absent because of Covid um, there are obviously still quite a lot of COVID patients they're picking up as well, and that can take slightly longer to um, assess a, basement, place, um, a patient and get them into the ambulance and into hospital. Uh, there's a, ma- a major issue with handover delays, which is taking a lot of ambulances off the road for extended times. Um, we heard yesterday that one ambulance has sat outside A&E for 24 hours. I'm told that sometimes people go on shift. Their their first um, call is to a patient who's taken to hospital and they sit outside that hospital for the rest of their 12-hour shift. Then they're relieved by someone else who comes and sits in that, that ambulance for another 12-hour shifts. And on very rare occasions, the first crew go back the next morning and guess what? Their patient is still outside the hospital, um, sitting in an ambulance, and they t- they take over again. So we're seeing a very significant number of ambulances being taken out of service. There's also the weather, which is, uh, has not been pleasant, um, has probably driven up calls to the ambulance um, services, and is likely to do so even more. I feel over the next week, next Monday is predicted to be the the height for the heat wave, and in addition to to that, Mondays are often quite bad in the NHS, as we all know, and that is true for the ambulance services as well as for acute hospitals. Mm. Do you think it's because sometimes we see um, 
you know, the fire brigade being drafted in to, to drive ambulances or, you know, kind of these emergency measures. But do you think just providing more ambulances would, would have any, would that be a helpful thing, you know? Um, no, because there isn't the parking spaces outside A&E for them. <laughs> and that's ultimately where quite a lot of them end up. The The trouble with just putting out more ambulances with staff who have lower levels of training is that you, you're going to get more people just being taken to hospital. You're going to return to the old days of scoop and run when mm. ambulances were seen as purely as a way of getting someone into hospital as quickly as possible, as opposed to being staffed by paramedics who can do an awful lot to um, settle someone at home or to uh, direct them to a, a, a different service. Mm. So I, I don't know that just putting out more ambulances at the, at the moment is going to make an awful lot of difference. This must, Of course, this is hugely distressing and, and incredibly dangerous for, for patients. I wonder if you've um, spoken to anyone working in the service about some of the situations they've been been facing because of this. Yes, I mean, I, I, I was contacted over the weekend by a number of ambulance staff who were quite distressed about what was going on. I'm told that in some cases in the southeast, there were category two patients. Um, so those are patients with potentially serious conditions such as heart attacks and strokes who were waiting up to five hours for an ambulance. Um, that's obviously dangerous for them. I, I've no doubt that the problems we have at the moment are costing lives around the country. It's also incredibly demoralising for ambulance crews who who turn up and they perhaps see someone who's in a far worse um, con condition than they expected and they know that that delay has contributed to it. Mm. Mm. And and so in terms of kind of what can be done to try and make this situation better it seems that like there's a very limited you know arsenal um what what are your thoughts on this is there anything that can can be done to ease this or anything that needs to be done by you know powers that be I think there's there's a limited number of things that can be done by the ambulance services at the mm. moment because this is fundamentally not an ambulance problem Yes, demand can be quite high. Yes, we can see high levels of acuity amongst patients who, who call 999. And potentially then that does mean more people need to go to A&E than anticipated. But the real problem seemed to me to be around getting people into A&E and beyond that, getting people out of A&E onto mm. a ward and ultimately um, discharging people to um, a non-acute environment, whether that's a community hospital, whether it's back home with a package of care or, or whether that's into a care home. And if that's not happening, the whole system slows down and you do get that that position where someone's sitting outside A&E for 24 hours or whatever, because there's not physically space to take them into the unit. So uh, I'm a so, Annabelle, you wrote an interesting story uh, for Monday about mm. uh, Tracy Bullock, uh, um, uh, um, the chief executive of, remind me, I forgot now. University it, Hospitals of North Midland. North Midland. Yes. Um, uh, saying that she had been pressured by persons unnamed <laughs> into uh, basically taking in more uh, patients into her A&E uh, to reduce her, mm. uh, hospital ambulance. So, talk a little bit about what went on there because that's clearly mm. I mean there are efforts 
there have been efforts for a number of months by the centre to mm. try and manage the situation because although this is all over the national press at the moment, anyone who's been reading HSJ uh, will have known that we have been um, uh, covering it in detail for a number of months. So just talk us a little bit about that story because that seems to me um, an interesting sort of gro growing pressure point yes. uh, uh, between ambulance trusts and hospital trusts with the with the the centre i.e nhs england in the middle trying to navigate that tension mm, i think that the tension's really interesting and i think this is maybe the the other side it was described to me as being the other side of the ambulance crisis um so i spoke spoke to tracy also um several other nhs ceos um one of whom said that they were they felt the pressure from nhs england that's the ceo in the south of england who didn't want to be named um but they they said that um, they were being asked to basically do whatever it takes and to make they were having to balance risk and make some really horrible decisions about you know where to treat people and um they all said that staffing was the rate limiting factor um they were saying well we're told to now told to cohort patients, but the only spaces we have to cohort them are corridors. So it becomes corridor care under a under a different name. Yeah. So whenever you hear cohorting patients, um, uh, you sounds a lot nicer, doesn't it? <laughs> you should understand it's a euphemism for stick, sticking somebody on a trolley in a corridor. Yeah. Yes, or, or um, in some yeah. cases they've tried tents or pods outside A&E yeah. um, yeah. and asked ambulance staff to remain there with pa a, a group of patients. Uh, yeah. And another uh, um, method I've heard about is one called boarding, where basically you stick a patient on a trolley basically outside a ward. When you know somebody's going to be discharged, you basically there's almost like a sort of waiting area <laughs> and you just <laughs> get them out of the A&E just stick them in the corridor next to the ward ready to go as soon as they can get someone out of the uh, um, uh, uh, and um, I've heard that called boarding or plus one yes, <laughs> well, yes. Boarding, yeah. I think would be another phrase for it <laughs> yeah yeah plus warning um, which is I've, I've been told I wrote a story about um, Nottingham hospitals doing that a few months ago um, and I was told it is, it is quite unusual they really really don't want to do it for obvious reasons um, but it kind of it comes back to what you were saying Alison about it's all about there was everyone saying it's about flow it's about yeah. not having anywhere for people you know the whole the whole the whole flow throughout the hospital is completely chocker um, getting people out when they need to leave um, and I think you know NHS England are really no, no, no! This is a huge problem. They've told trust, you know, they've given them this hundred-day challenge to to come up with sort of better discharge plans. But it sort of seems, I don't, yeah, I just don't know how how they can <laughs> how they can do that without, you know, because we know. Yeah, it did. Said, what, I, I, I mean, I hope that they will collect lots of good ideas. But immediately, yeah. I saw that thing. I thought, well, that's basic. They can't actually do anything in some really meaningful they can shift the problem around in the system you know um, uh, as they're sort of doing it now to try and sort of even out the risk but the only thing that's going to fix it fundamentally is changes to social care and which gets yes. you know unplugging uh, unblocking the the back end of of, of of the system everything else is either constrained by lack of workforce or will take you know you know training new staff introducing it new service models etc introducing mm. Uh, various technological solutions that they, they could all help but it'll take mm. some uh, take some time <laughs> just when I saw that 100 day challenge I thought 
somebody's just thought we need to buy ourselves some time we need to be doing something so let's say we'll have a 100 day challenge and then we can just whenever he asks us what we're doing we're saying we'll tell you in 100 days <laughs> and how long ago was the 100 day challenge I think about I'm 10 like, days ago now, so maybe not a 90 ago, yeah. day challenge. Yeah. So the clock is yeah. count, it's clock ticking is down sticking. for them. Yep. Yes. Okay. I mean, I think the other thing that could be done by ambulance trusts, and they don't like doing this, and it, it, but it does happen occasionally, is they just say that we really can't get to the category three and four calls, and we're going to concentrate what resources we have on category one and two, which are obviously the ones that are, are most urgent and have the potential to cause real harm or even loss of life. Um, yeah, well, that, Alison, it just it, it strikes me that when are we going to get the first ambulance trust, which basically say uh, we're basically puts out a message which is, says, unless you think you are about to die. Don't ring us. You know, because been fairly close it, to that in communications from some of them recently yes yeah um, i mean the, you know imminently <laughs> imminently life-threatening it's not imminently yes. life-threatening don't cause yes. what what's mm -hmm. happening to 111 volumes uh allison are they going up um we, i imagine they are going up i'm told that abandonment rates in some areas have increased quite significantly though the, those can be very variable around the country anyhow I, and i assume that 111 um uh uh uh, uh call stations um uh, they're suffering from the same covid related staff absence um uh, and therefore time to take answering calls is getting longer and longer as well I, you see plenty of anecdotal stuff on that on social media don't you yes yes you do and, and of course we do get data on that but it does tend to be um, quite a few weeks out out of date but i'm sure like the rest of the nhs they are going going to be hit by covid absence um which we've also heard is quite high in some hospitals mm. now, and had, oh sorry um, i was, I was just going to say we do, we do know some hospitals have, have um, been under heavy pressure as well. And Portsmouth, I think it was, declared a critical incident on, on Monday. Yeah, um, I mean, the um, uh, I've, thank you, Alison. It gives me an opportunity to have a little rant, um, uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, which is um, Lord Kamal, who is the um, uh, uh, Tory health spokesman in the House of Lords, when answering a question, said that um, uh, he said that if, you know, level of COVID, um, if, if COVID got to a level where it was affecting the NHS's ability to deal with the elective backlog, either through um, COVID patients being in the uh, uh, in hospitals or staff being off, that, you know, the government would take action. Mm. Well, let me tell you, Lord Kamal, uh, if you asked any NHS Trust Chief Executive, they would tell you that the level of COVID, both in terms of what it's doing, people coming into the hospital and staff not being working, has been affecting their ability to tackle the elective backlog for some considerable time. We are on our third wave this um, uh, in 2022. Uh, and, um, you know, it struck me as one thing is, is, is just, there's two things. One is, Either the government is completely out of touch or um, uh, with what's going on in the NHS, um, or as I think is probably more likely, they just closing their eyes and hoping it goes away as quickly as possible. 
uh, because they just don't want to. And indeed, they, there is no bandwidth within the government at the moment for reasons yeah. that are obvious uh, yeah. to actually do anything fundamental. So um, it, it, it really irritated me when he said that because it was so plainly, clearly um, untrue, the suggestion that it wasn't affecting the backlog when every, every, almost everybody in the NHS knows that it is. Yeah, that point about bandwidth, I was going to just put to you, Alison, around, you know, we've got a, a health secretary who's been in the job for barely a week. And I think only just now, only in the last couple of days, a full complement of, you know, junior junior health ministers. You know, is is this cutting through to the to the to the DH? You know, is this I've not I've not seen anything from any of the Tory leadership candidates on this. Maybe I've just missed it. But oh, haven't you? Tom Tom Tugendhat's going to bring in the army. Oh, good. Okay. So don't worry. Don't worry. Because because that's never been suggested before, has it? Yeah, that's been tried, yeah. tried several times. I don't know uh, what difference it made. A little, probably, but it's certainly not a solution. No, I think you said you're going to bring in, um, you know, our generals to run the NHS, <laughs> just like the oh. 1970s, when oh. when when um, most of the administrators, as they were, were retired colonels and majors of various of various types. And of uh, course, the NHS not... was known for its efficiency in the 1970s. Let's um, let's not hold our breath there. I think. Mm. Last last question from me, Alison, before we move on to our next topic. It's this has been said by by a, a couple of people now, but do do you think the crisis in the ambulance service at the moment is it is it the next mid staffs? What do you think? Yes, I, I actually think it is. I mean, I think there is an awful lot of avoidable mortality and morbidity happening out there mm. at the moment um, because people are not being reached by ambulances or they are being reached by ambulances and they're then sitting outside A&E and not get, getting admitted. Ambulance staff are great. They've got a really wonderful skill set. They're not a skill set that are designed for looking after critically ill people for 24 hours in an mm. entirely unsuitable environment, in mm. which the back mm. of an ambulance fundamentally is. Um, so I am I am sure that we are seeing a lot of people die as a result of this. Um, and I also think we will see a lot of people who choose to leave the ambulance service because they have found yeah. it so, so harrowing, frankly. Yeah, um, it must so, be absolutely yeah. horrible at the moment. Yes, mm. I'm yes. waiting for the lawsuits. Well, That's I think that inevitably they will they will follow. <laughs> I mean, um, I was looking at um, uh, some legal spend for the NHS uh, recently, and this was in the first pandemic year. And in terms of their relative size, ambulance trusts were spending much more money on defending uh, various cases than any other type of trust. Uh, because of the nature of an emergency service. Uh, and you can only imagine that, you know, I wonder if you might get some kind of sort of um, group action against an ambulance trust mm. where a number of people come together. Um, uh, 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 nothing's emerged yet, but um, uh, it could well happen. Thanks very much. And I think Let's now move on to talking about NHS England. And we, we discussed it a few weeks ago about, well, sort of touched on this a few weeks ago about um, the big job that um, Navina Evans will have when she becomes Chief Workforce Officer. Um, 
and last week some more details emerged about some of the job cuts that are facing people in NHS England. Um, and Alistair, you've been thinking a lot about this um, this week and I posed the question at the beginning in my introduction, you know, how big does NHS England need to be? So perhaps maybe that's a good point to, to jump into this. For your yeah, I'm, uh, so the um, that story uh, about the job cuts is currently the best read story on HSJ, has 64 comments on it, mm -hmm. um, uh, which are um, uh, which is a pretty big number. Um, and, you know, those comments are reflect the nature of the debate uh, about the role and the size of the sort of um, the headquarters of the NHS, um, which has been pretty steady in its uh, uh, subject matter for the two decades that um, I've been around, uh, which is, you know, how big should it be? Answer usually smaller than it is. And what should it be doing? Answer usually giving us the money and leaving us alone. Uh, so, but I thought we'd just take a little, I'd take a step back and and look at how we got here um, and then uh, 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 discuss uh, uh, with you two about sort of what happened next. The first question that I I asked myself, well, is it that big? So the new NHS England has about 20,000 staff, which is about 1.5% of the NHS workforce, give or take. So BART's Healthcare Trust has 16,000 staff and 1.5% of that is 240. So does BARTS have senior management and all the support people around them of about 240? I suspect it probably does. I suspect it probably has more than that. But so, you know, I think there is a 20,000 might sound like a lot of people. But for an organisation, a system that has 1.5 million people and has, um, you know, a budget of or spends, you know, in the in the region of 150 billion pounds, if you take various um, uh, uh, things uh, into into account, that's not really that big. Not I, if you you know in, if you contextualise it that way. But let's. It's certainly a lot bigger than it used to be. So let's. So my next question was, how did it get so big? So when NHS England was created, um, it was designed to be a commissioning body. It was, of course, the NHS commissioning board. And um, certainly when Simon Stevens took over in 2014, he was very clear in his mind that he wanted it to remain a commissioning body, a an organisation that used its fact that it controlled the purse strings uh, to influence behaviour uh, and outcomes in the NHS. Um, to be a challenging organisation, uh, a supportive um, where possible, etc. But absolutely not a command centre. 
Now, I'm afraid um, uh, he failed in that mission and it absolutely did become a command center. And there are various reasons uh, 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 for that. Um, as I've spoken at great length beforehand, you know, Simon's time at NHS England was was a series of tactical uh, tactical responses to a very, very dramatically changing background. And one of those tactical changes was leaving behind that ambition to be a pure commissioning body and turning NHS England into a command centre. Now it's natural, I think all bureaucracies get bigger over time, or most of them do, because they get various roles aggregated um, on top of um, on top of each other. But what were the specific things that made NHS England get bigger? Well, first of all, when Jeremy Hunt, when, when Simon arrived and Hunt got to know him, he was very happy, Jeremy Hunt was very happy to let NHS E take over the lead of whatever needed to, uh, uh, to, to be done. At basically saving the NHS from the Lansley reforms. Uh, and um, as it became clear that the Lansley reforms and the purchaser provider split was on its way out, it took for an age for that finally to, to come to fruition, as we all know. But as it as it as that happened, um, uh, the um, um, it became more obvious that there needed to be a command center because it was no longer we were no running running a market system um, uh, uh, where there was a sort of light touch regulator monitor. Remember those? Uh, um, it was a lot more like. The 70s and 80s, where and 90s, where you had um, a head office, which was the Department of Health, and now was NHS England. Then you got Brexit. Now Brexit uh, was increased uh, uh, workforce very significantly in the civil servant, but it or civil service, but it also spilled over into NHS England. Um, Keith Willett, before he was um, COVID czar, was Brexit czar, and there was quite a lot of work that was associated. But then, of course, the pandemic arrived and um, NHS England had to do lots of things that it hadn't done in the past at a speed it hadn't done in the past. The most obvious one is the vaccination programme. But there are many other um, uh, aspects of the rollout of the vaccination programme, but there are many other aspects of, of pandemic response which grew uh, which grew the size of NHS England. Then there were the various decisions to, to scrap Health Education England, Public Health England, NHX and NHS Digital. NHS Digital uh, would, would body quite, that been quite a long, uh, um, been around for quite a long time um, uh, and uh, under, ver under various names. So you can see that the that it, it had sort of like a sort of ship's hull accreting loads of sort of um, uh, various uh, crustaceans. It had sort of, it, you know, it had built up quite over a while. And therefore, probably the time is right. In fact, the time is right for its function and its size to be reviewed. But why particularly these significant size of cuts? Um, 
So um, <clears throat> people remember that uh, Amanda Pritchard said that they were looking to cut between six, uh, 30 and 40 percent. So six, if we say 20,000 people, it's a bit more than that, but if we say, um, uh, um, uh, you know, 6,000 to 8,000 posts. Now, to a certain extent, she's saying that because she knows a re some reduction is already built in. There'll be a whole range of fixed term posts, including secondments from various management consultancies, etc., that are there for the pandemic, for the, but there for pandemic reasons or other reasons that I've talked about, um, which will come to an end, and that will save in the post. Um, and that was um, account for some of the reduction in posts. The uh, it's not really talked about much, but NHS England faces quite significant budget cuts. Um, it got a lot of money to help uh, respond to the pandemic. That's largely going. And as we're hearing a lot in the news at the moment, every um, uh, prospective Conservative Party uh, leader uh, and certainly the current health secretary wants uh, a lot fewer civil and public servants. And as an aside, um, it, it, the Care Quality Commission is also undergoing a government review at the moment. It was something that was baked in anyway as part of the legislation that created it. But, you know, um, this uh, idea of shrinking the, the, the state or shrinking the um, central departments is something that is uh, 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 very high in government priority at the moment as they seek to find ways to to save money. And I can only think that, that that's going to intensify. One of the other reasons, one of the major reasons why it's getting to this fall, is the NHS chiefs in providers, uh, particularly in providers, and to a certain extent integrated care systems, want it to be smaller and they want it to have fewer layers above them, mainly to cut down on the second guessing of their decisions and the repeated requests for uh, info. Now, back to my give us the money and leave us alone point, that's always been the case. But what is different, I think, it, 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 this time is that uh, NHS England uh, Chief Executive Amanda Pritchard has specifically specifically um, um, set about addressing this challenge in concert with uh, local NHS leaders. Uh, and I think the appointment of um, uh, um, NHS providers, Chief Executive Chris Hobson as her new strategy director, is, I think is the best example of that, but there are many others. And when she announced the um, cuts um, uh, um, last week, she made a point about how NHS England needed to get smaller so that providers and ICSs had more space in which to do uh, their work. Uh, there is a, there's a lot of concern amongst uh, particularly provider chiefs, but I suspect on ICSs as well, that there isn't an effective operating, nobody affecting operating model. Um, uh, within the NHS at the moment, despite ICS is having gone live. Uh, I'll be writing more about this next week. Uh, but it's very clear that Amanda Pritchard is, she always said that she would respond to what the service wanted, 
in terms of how NHS England has operated and she is at, she appears to be absolutely following through on that promise. Um, so um, that's the context. Well, what happens now? I mean, for, it's natural to feel sorry for NHS England, NHS X, NHS Digital, HE staff. Uh, for many of them, it'll be something like their it'll be their fifth reorganisation in a decade, and it's really hard to do a decent job if you're constantly being organised. It's bound to have a big impact impact on morale. Some directorates we know, as the um, uh, uh, piece that Annabelle you wrote about uh, the NHS England staff survey, you know, some morale, some of the morale is, you know, very very shaky. At least we reference Naveen Evans and the new people directorate. At least the people directorate aren't running this. Um, uh, 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 they've dodged the bullet of having to run the job reduction, and that is um, going to be uh, at the moment it's led by Mark Cubbon. Um, um, and, uh, you know, so as an inter as an internal process, but it's whatever, however it's handled, it's bound to be significant uncertainty. Uh, because whenever inevitably um, when people are focused, people are focused on their own futures, they tend to be less focused on doing their job. It's just natural. Everybody, we'd all be the same. And of course, there is going to be lots of jockeying for position as people decide, you know, who they report to, who reports to them, what kind of influence be. It is bound to consume a lot of senior management time. Amanda is trying to ring fence that influence away from people like Navina, who've got other big fish to fry, as we've discussed on um, uh, uh, other other podcasts. But inevitably, it's just you know it's just going to soak through the whole organisation, and senior managers are bound to have to spend a lot of time. <laughs> NHS England, I think it. This will inevitably reduce the influence of NHS England, not simply because it's smaller, but also because it will be consumed by this process. And that's going to increase the influence of the Department of Health, which is moving slowly back into policy. We'll have to see who the new health secretary is and we'll have to see. Sorry, we'll have to see who the health secretary is after the appointment of the new prime minister to really determine that. But I think and this is a guess, an informed guess, I think. I think it's actually going to put more power back into the hands of local leaders, influential local leaders. Now, I don't mean all local leaders. I mean the big hitters. And I'm very sort of mindful of how Nigel Crisp, uh, Department of Health um, uh, Permanent Secretary and NHS England Chief Executive ran things, where there was quite a big group of about 30 um, um, SHO chief executives and provider chief executives who effectively ran the NHS, uh, um, um, you know, uh, as a sort of collegiate, uh, collegiate group. It was very informal, uh, back in New Labour's um, uh, sofa politics uh, days. Seems like we're moving back into that world for a year or so at least. There's a big question over the role of regions. Um, uh, you know, basic. Some people want them just almost to be completely gone. Some want them to be 
increased or maintained and all the reductions at national level. You pay your money, it takes your choice. And my final thought, uh, when Annabelle, I'd, I'm particularly interested uh, in your views, and certainly Alison, you've you've been around a long time and seen these uh, uh, reaction, uh, seen um, the the nature of the centre change a lot. Is that um, people who are calling on the NHS England to get much smaller? need to be careful what they ask for because what they'll do is end up with the responsibility of delivering um uh, uh um so they won't have somebody else to blame we're being to the, uh, we've been told to do this uh but no more no new money to achieve it thank you alistair i think that's yeah it, it's oh there's so much there but i i'm i'm very interested in um the point about um losing skilled skilled staff i think there are questions remaining about redundancy and whether people will be offered voluntary redundancy which could see people leaving who they don't want to leave perhaps or compulsory redundancy which is obviously really quite a toxic thing and you know i think it could have a big impact on morale um i think those questions remained unanswered at the moment it's really unclear well there's a there's a very good comment under the story by uh, stephen black who is a man who comments a lot on uh, NHS management issues uh, at HSJ and elsewhere and on social media. And he's, he makes a very good point, I think, uh, which is, and I'll just read out what he says. Mm -hmm. Departments that should be expanded will suffer the same losses as those that should be abolished. Individuals who are competent and skilled will not be preserved if they are easy to shed compared to others who are too hard to shift despite despite being less skilled and competent. Now, that is pretty much uh, <laughs> certainly every reorganisation I've been through in uh, the various media organisations I've worked for. That has been a constant challenge where, in a sense, to sort of make it fair, um, all departments, etc., are handed a arbitrary you know two percent five percent ten percent twenty percent you know, thirty or forty percent cut you know you must have to because every everybody has to be treated fairly rather on a basis of actually sitting back and saying and i think stephen goes on to say um you know what nhs england should be really doubling down on is um sort of analytics uh, uh and sort of you know understanding the system and therefore you know doing less sort of doing stuff um so for example uh there's quite a lot of centralization of procurement at the moment maybe under stephen's world what it should do is spend its time analyzing procurement but not actually doing it or seeking to influence it and there are some stuff that is being centralized uh and leave that to a a a, a lower a lower tier uh, I, I think i think that is the real challenge <clears throat> how well are these things done is this taken as an opportunity to really think about what nhs england should do and shouldn't do or is it just um i mean i'm sure they i'm sure it will be said that it is such a thing but you know is that really will we really see um nhs england declaring we used to do this thing and we were no longer doing it. That is the thing that never happens in the NHS. What you have is people uh, you know, changing the emphasis on things and you know, some things being massively under-resourced, but it's really, really 
rare and quite difficult for people to actually say, no, we will no longer do X. We shall see. Um, uh, um, certainly, Amanda will be willed on by um, uh, 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 local NHS leaders to stop some areas of NHS England activity. But um, uh, when they look at all the various statutory requirement um, uh, obligations they have and the various political pressures they're under, whether they're able to do it or not, um, it's going to be a big question. It also struck me if they were returning to a position where there are powerful people in acute trusts who have influence over the entire system may not be terribly good I and mean, we've seen a period where perhaps there's been more attention paid to community trusts mental health trusts ambulance trusts as having something to say and and having a means to address some of the problems in the system i don't know that putting power back in the hands of um large acute trust chief executives is necessarily going to produce the answers to some of the uh, the problems we're facing at the moment um, particularly if you look around things like admission avoidance and early discharge a lot of the answers seem to me to be out there in community trusts um, developing uh, rapid response teams for example to to prevent people being admitted to hospital will there be the investment in those if the powerful voices in the system are all coming from from big acutes yeah well i i, I know quite a few big acute chief executives who would argue that um uh, their um uh, <clears throat> their take on on the world is a bit more sophisticated than than you uh, suggest but absolutely of course they still run organizations and they still have their um uh, their interest, their organisation to their fore. They're required to by the terms of their job. I mean, we are seeing. I mean, whoever is in charge, you get various sort of um, uh, biases uh, and um, that um, which uh, uh, push the service in one way or in one way or the other. I choose not really to make a value judgment because I see the pros and cons of a strong centre or strong local providers or strong integrated care systems. And I see the weaknesses uh, 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 as well. Uh, and the current breed of um, acute trust chief executives, as you know, Alison, very well, as you and I have been working on the top 50 chief executives rankings, they're quite different from the yes. um, uh, um, the the barons, uh, uh, to use David Nicholson's mm -hmm. phrase, of the past, who basically you know built big um, castles and um, uh, you know uh, uh, worried about what went on inside their castle and you know, didn't care a damn really about what went on in the the blasted heaths outside their um, impressive walls. Uh, I think, you know, um, there's a generation of, of acute trust chief executives who are very different in their uh, in their worldview than, than, than they are now. That said, there is still that, pre you know, they still have to, you know, they still have a board to answer to. Yes. Yes. And when push comes to shove, the interests and the financial interests of their, of their own trusts will remain incredibly important to them. 
I mean, I, yeah. I do I do think we I agree that a lot of the younger generation of uh, chief executives have a much more holistic view of the system, appreciate how things fit together, can see that spending some of their their own money elsewhere um, can have a great impact. I don't think that's universal. I can think of um, a number of um, acute trust chief executives who perhaps are, if not barons, at least knights. Oh well, no. You see, knight—that's very common because um, uh, uh, knights were that—that's a uh, knights in David Nicholson's stories. Knights were always—they were different. They were the good guys who basically rode between the various barons' castles, doing various good deeds. Uh, and in um, uh, David's uh, uh, analogy, the barons had all the power, and the knights got all the glory. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, in in our, it, it, you might say that in our in our in our world, perhaps still the provider chiefs are the barons and the knights are the integrated care uh, system leaders, the Rob Websters of this world who are <laughs> um, seeking to you know change things uh, 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 for the better. Uh, I don't think that analogy holds so uh, so strongly now these days. Uh, the world is more complex and, and and nuanced than it was uh, back in those command and controls days. But again, as Alison, you all know, um, it is interesting that a lot of these new breed of chief executives are attempting to reclaim command and control as something that they need to do to do their job, um, but um, perhaps not to do it in the sort of um, uh, shouty way. Uh, that it was done, uh, it was done in the past. But you know, I suppose it's very interesting. We've got to this point in the conversation because it just shows that what happens to a centre organisation sends ripples out throughout the throughout the service uh, and affects is, affects behaviour and culture and outcomes in a whole range of ways. We've had two conversations in this podcast, haven't we? Very one that's sort of very visceral. Uh, and very immediate about um, um, uh, what's happening with ambulance trust, real life or death stuff, literally. And now we've had this conversation, which in some ways, if somebody was involved in the NHS senior management, would think, well, what are you talking about? It's just, you know, uh, it's relatively few number of people in the in the size of the uh, in size of the NHS. Uh, but it is quite fundamental on um, how the system operates and how the most senior people in it spend their time and that matters. I think yeah I think this is absolutely something we're going to be coming back to and, and as we're speaking we don't know what the the full kind of um, organisation is going to look like in terms of sort of the top jobs and but it'll be interesting. And I think this is a good note to, to wrap up the podcast this week. Um, two really meaty topics. Thank you both so much for joining. And I just need to remind listeners, our podcast is available every week on our website and across all main podcast channels. And please don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And for more health policy news and analysis, do check out our website, hsj.co.uk, where you can also subscribe. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next week.